This past week marked the 30th anniversary of the church van accident where a fully loaded cement truck crashed into our 15-passenger van on the way to youth camp in East Texas. It happened on June 8 of 1992, and five of my friends died that day. And ten, including myself, survived by God's grace when all really should have perished. There was a gathering in East Texas at the hospital where many of us were taken for medical care. It was the first time in 30 years when the survivors and the medical professionals who attended to us came together. It was an opportunity for us survivors to thank the first responders, doctors, nurses, and EMT personnel who saved our lives. I sent in a video message. Watching the live stream of the memorial service held in the hospital lobby, I witnessed a very poignant moment when Chuck Bice, helicopter paramedic, shared his memories of that day. You see, the helicopter could only carry two people from the scene of the accident, but there were three who needed to be airlifted to the nearest trauma hospital. And so on the spot, as the medic, he had to triage three young people and make a decision who to take on the helicopter based on the injuries and survivability. So he took two survivors and came back for the third an hour later. For 30 years, he wondered if his decision was the right one or not. It haunted him for decades if he made the right call. But there, at the gathering, he met two people he chose to lift out first. And because of his decision, he met my friends, John and Anita, after 30 years. Both of them are married and with their own children. The third person did not survive because of her severe injuries. At that service, Chuck, John, and Anita held each other in a tight embrace. Chuck had made the right call, affirmed 30 years later. There was not a dry eye in the room, including mine watching half a world away. As memories of that tragic day 30 years ago filled my mind, I was reminded that everyday decisions have long-lasting consequences. If I had just been one seat over to my left, sitting where my friend was sitting, I would have died at the age of 15, and he would have lived. We make choices every day that affect our lives. I've said it many times, the decisions we make today reverberate throughout eternity. Also, the decisions of others affect our lives. So it's quite apparent that our lives are ultimately in God's hands, and trying to take control of every outcome in our lives is futile at best. Therefore, we must learn to trust God. We have to learn to cultivate and develop a confident faith in the God who is all-powerful and worthy of our trust and faith. As we continue our series titled Marvel, looking at the seven miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John, we come to the second of these miracles recorded in John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54, as we learn how to build up a confident faith that will not waver in uncertain times. John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. I read now verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. We're told in this verse that Jesus is again in the town of Cana in the Galilee region. John does not record why Jesus was there, but only that it was the place where Jesus' first miracle took place, the turning of washing water into the finest of wines, which we studied last week. Now over in another city, the city of Capernaum, on the northwest shores of the Sea of Galilee, 
we're told that there was a nobleman whose son was sick. This nobleman was unnamed because it was not important to the story. It was just noted that he was a man of means and influence and that there was a long distance and space between the two cities of Cana and Capernaum. Jesus was in Cana while the sick son was in Capernaum, about 35 kilometers or 22 miles away. It was probably a two-day walk between the two cities. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. When this nobleman heard that Jesus was in the area of the Galilee, he quickly made the journey to see Jesus and asked Jesus to heal his very sick son, who was about to die, the Bible tells us. There was desperation on the part of this father. He could have sent his servant on this two-day trip to Cana to ask Jesus to come, but he went himself, perhaps thinking his status and position could somehow convince Jesus to come with him to heal his son. When this nobleman met Jesus, the Bible tells us he begged, pleaded, implored Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son. As he was a man of means, he most certainly would have gotten the best of medical attention in the city of Capernaum for his son. But his position, his wealth, and the local medical intervention could do nothing to save his son. In desperation, this nobleman sought the help of Jesus by personally making the long journey to see Jesus and humbling himself to beg Jesus for help. As the saying goes, desperate times calls for desperate measures, which begs the question of all of us, to what extent are we willing to go to seek the Lord? Are we desperate to know Christ and for others to know Him? I know of at least two situations that will elicit in us a desperate effort to do something. The first is when we are crazy in love with someone or something, and the second is when we are at the end of the ropes, we are losing hope, or when we have no one else to turn to. As an example of the first scenario of doing desperate things out of intense love, I know a few people in our community who during the pandemic were willing to take the travel risk of contracting the COVID virus and were willing to pay the expenses of traveling Trans-Pacific just to watch BTS Live in Las Vegas a few months ago. Of course, to each their own, but that level of devotion to a musical group is amazing and even admirable. But I wonder why that same devotion and desperation isn't there to seek out the Lord. The same people who would fly to another city to attend a concert or take an extended family vacation are the very same people who have a very hard time waking up just a bit earlier to come to in-person worship services to worship together in community. And in the second scenario for doing things out of desperation, why is it that we often have to wait until the situation is dire, when hope is gone, that we finally turn to seek Jesus? Recently, Cindy had to have a medical procedure that required her to be partially sedated with anesthetics that numbed the lower part of her body. After the procedure and during the recovery, she woke up and probably in a medical fog was shocked that she could not move her legs. As she told me the story later, in those three hours as the anesthesia was wearing off, she pleaded with God to let her have feelings in her legs again so that she could walk again and made a lot of promises to God. Of course, when the anesthesia wore off, she gained feelings in her legs again and was able to walk. 
We both laughed about it in the car, about all the commitments she made to the Lord. If only she could have feelings in her legs again. And I asked her if she would really do all that she said she would do. But it goes to show that when desperate, we will be willing to do whatever it takes. My friends, does God need to put us into an extremely difficult situation, a moment of crisis to get our attention, to get us to trust Him instead of trusting the world? Can't we seek Jesus out when things aren't that bad and we simply want to have an intimate relationship with Him because we are so in love with Christ like in the first scenario? Why do we often have to wait for the second scenario, a moment of crisis like in this case with a nobleman, to have confident faith in our Lord and fully trust in Him? Now, putting it all together, we have our first biblical principle, biblical principle number one. The journey towards confident faith often begins with a desperate crisis. The journey towards confident faith often begins with a desperate crisis. My friends, if you're going through a time of desperation or perhaps a personal crisis or family crisis, see it as an opportunity for you to build up your faith, an opportunity for you to build up confident faith in our Lord, a time for you to see God beginning to work in your life. You see, desperate times often serve as a crossroad of sorts for you to determine if you're going to desire to learn from what you're going through or will become bitter with God and walk away from Him. I read now verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Here in this verse, Jesus was speaking to the larger crowd that must have been around him when the nobleman pleaded with Jesus. He said that all of the people had to see miraculous signs and wonders before they would believe that He was the Son of God and could do as He claimed. And this was the wrong perspective. Jesus' words were rebuked to the people listening to help them redirect their faith from a crisis type of faith that came to God for help only as a last resort to a faith that wasn't based on results but on the person, a faith that believed in what could not be seen. I'm sure that if Jesus agreed to go with the nobleman to Capernaum, many in Cana would have followed him on the two-day walk just to see if the nobleman's son would be healed. Many of them were there only for the show. But Jesus was going to show the people that the foundation of our faith should not be on results and outcomes, but in a person. This nobleman believed Jesus could save his son. That's why he came all the way from Capernaum to Cana. But there is no reason to think that this man believed that Jesus at that point was the divine Son of God who could be his own personal Savior. In fact, look at verse 49. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This nobleman believed that Jesus had to be physically present in the same place as his ailing son for his son to be healed. That's why in verse 49, the man implored Jesus to quickly come with him before his son died. To this man, Jesus was like medicine. You have to physically take the medicine in order to be cured. That's why I believe that this man's faith was initially shallow, limited to Jesus being some sort of healer and only that, needing to be present in order to heal his son. His faith was contingent upon personally seeing Jesus physically present with his ailing son doing his healing. But that's not how faith works. Faith is trusting in the person, not in the signs and wonders that has to be seen. 
And that's our second biblical principle, biblical principle number two. Confident faith is trusting in the person of God and not contingent upon seeing His outworking. Confident faith is trusting in the person of God and not contingent upon seeing His outworking. This is such an important principle for us to understand that will mature and deepen our faith. Our trust in God is in the person of who He is, not in the results of what He has done. If our faith is contingent upon the results, then it is a very shallow faith at best, and it's results-driven instead of being person-driven. Results-driven faith will wilt and be shaken when we may not get the results we're looking for because it's not God's will, or when the results take too long to come because God says wait. On the other hand, a person-driven faith is a faith that is deep and strong as we place our trust in the person of God who is perfect in all of His ways. So when the results aren't as we expect, we can still trust in a God who knows what He's doing. And when the results are taking too long, we trust in a God whose timing is always perfect. You know, there are many things we cannot see God doing and did not see firsthand what Jesus did. But that in no way diminishes the power of God, nor diminishes the claim of who Jesus is. For example, if there was a man in Australia who claims he can lift a Toyota Camry over his head, our first reaction is, prove it. I need to see it with my own eyes to believe it. If I cannot see it, I will not believe. But your being able to see it or your lack of trust in his ability to do so in no way diminishes his ability to do so if he's able to do as he so claims. I hope you see my point. And this is a very important lesson to learn about faith in God. Because if we require seeing something happen in order to believe, then we will lose out on the benefits, not believing because we do not see. And this truth has eternal implications. For example, if we will not believe that Jesus can give us eternal life and salvation because we didn't see firsthand Jesus' death and resurrection, which is recorded in the Bible with lots of empirical and circumstantial evidences that say it happened, then we will miss out on salvation and eternal life and instead receive eternal death and go to hell simply because we demanded to see first instead of having faith in the truth of God's Word. Another example, if we do not believe that God will give us His best if we obey His commands because we have not supposedly seen His best in our lives and we live our lives ignoring the commands of God, then we will miss out on His many blessings and instead receive His discipline. My friends, confident faith is trusting in the person of God and not contingent on seeing His outworking. We will miss out on so much if our faith is results-driven versus being person-driven. I think this story illustrates well this principle. A man walked into a bank, approached the teller, and asked, will you cash this check? After looking at the check, the teller said, well, sure, I can cash the check. Just put your name on the back of it, hand it to me, and I'll give you the money. The man stumbled back and said, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want to do that. You'll be holding my check with my name on it, and you might decide not to give me the money. Well, sir, no, the teller said. You will need to sign your name on the check before I give you the money. It's a banking policy. I get that, the man replied, but you must understand, it makes me very nervous to think that after doing what you ask, you might decide not to give me the money. 
Sir, I assure you, I will give you the money as long as you comply with banking policy, the teller said. The man continued to argue with the frustrated teller until finally she replied, I'm sorry, sir. I'm not going to be able to help you. You need to please leave. In anger, the man left, deciding he would get help somewhere else. Soon after, he walked to another bank. He would not sign his name, and it was again refused service by another aggravated teller. He tried a third bank, refusing again to sign his name on the check before receiving his money. He argued with yet another teller, who at the end of his rope, whacked the man on the head with a rubber baseball bat and commanded, just sign the check. Stunned, the man looked at the teller, picked up the pen, and signed the back of the check and handed it over to him. With a smile and a bit of a smirk, the teller handed the man his money. Money in hand, the man returned to the first bank, walked up to the first teller and said, look, I got my money down the street. Good for you, the teller said, but I bet even down the street you had to put your name on the back of the check before you got the money. The man replied, yeah, I did, but you see, no one ever quite explained it the way they did over there in the other bank. The man in the story has a result-driven faith that the bank must give him his money first. He wants a guarantee. Like many of us, he doesn't want to act unless he knows for a fact that something will indeed work and he knows exactly how it will work. As a matter of fact, we want things to work for us before we put all of our energy, time, and effort into it. But that simply isn't the way things work in the real world. So why do we expect it to be so with God? You have to sign the check first and trust that the bank will give you your money. However, we still won't accept this of God. So we look around for ways to bypass the process or find a different process. But the process never changes. The only thing that can change is our willingness to trust the process, to trust the journey God takes us on. And many times, we need to be figuratively whacked in the head by God before we finally get it. And it often comes in the form of pain, a crisis point, desperation. Pain is an effective teacher. And if we don't learn the lessons that pain and crisis brings to trust in the person and the journey process God takes us on, we may have to go through the same trials over and over again until we learn it the hard way. As with anything unfamiliar or uncertain, which is by nature the definition of faith, it is expected that you will feel doubt, resistance, and discomfort. It's normal to wonder, what if it doesn't work? But trusting the person of our Lord and not in the unseen results He brings means showing up, doing what I can do, and staying committed to the challenges even when it looks like it's not working, even when it doesn't feel like it's worth it, even when it doesn't look like I'm getting where I want to go. I notice it, acknowledge it, and decide to act in faith anyway. That's trust. Look with me at verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Here in this verse, Jesus tells the nobleman he will not be going with him to Capernaum, because his son has been healed. Now the man had to make a choice. Will he continue to beg and plead with Jesus to come with him, even just to make sure his son was really well, and if not, at least the Lord would already be there to heal him? Or would he trust by faith in Jesus' words without witnessing firsthand his son's healing? The Bible tells us that the man took Jesus at his word 
and returned back to Capernaum. We see that the nobleman's faith had deepened from initially only believing that healing would come if Jesus came with him to a faith that trusted in the power and authority of Jesus' words, effective 35 kilometers away. Putting yourself in a similar situation, would you be able to have the same type of faith this nobleman exhibited and walk away taking at face value the words of Jesus and trusting it? Let's say, for example, you're in a situation where you are desperately in need of money. You need money to feed your family and pay your rent or else you will be evicted and be homeless. So you go to the bank where you know the bank manager and you plead for charity and kindness from him. The bank manager says, don't worry. Once you get home, you will find that I will have transferred 10,000 pesos into your account. But you realize that the bank is busy and there are lots of people waiting to talk to the bank manager. What if he forgets? What if his words were only said to get rid of you and he won't actually do it? The doubts come pouring into your mind. You need this money today or else your children will go hungry and you will be homeless. You are desperate. Can you take him at his word? In this situation, what would you do? I know myself. If I was that desperate, I would ask the manager to make the promised transfer while I was still at the bank. I don't mind waiting. Please make the transfer while I'm there. I want to see it done. In fact, I may even open up my banking app to make sure that the money is transferred before I went home. I honestly think very few of us would trust the words of the bank manager in our desperation. He may forget because he's so busy, and if he forgets, my world falls apart. However, God tells us, don't worry. Sit back and relax and enjoy life. I have everything under control. I will provide for your needs and take care of you. But we think, Lord, there are 7.5 billion people in the world for you to take care of. I want some guarantees that you will keep your promises. So for me, first, I want to see the results and the blessings first before I can fully trust you. But as we've mentioned, this type of result-driven faith works against us because the person of God knows everything about us. And if our faith is person-driven, then we can rest assured. As Ray Pritchard writes, the Bible in many places sets forth the implications of God's unlimited knowledge of us. Consider the following statements. He numbers the hairs on your head, Luke 12, 7. He knows your words before you speak them, Psalm 139, verse 4. He knows your thoughts before you think them, Psalm 139, verse 2. He knows your prayers before you pray them, Matthew 6, 8. He knows when you get up in the morning and when you go to bed at night, Psalm 139, verses 2 and 3. He knows everything you're going to do tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, and every moment of every day until the moment of your death, Psalm 139, verse 16. He records every word you say and will someday call you to account for every careless, thoughtless, unkind, and unchristian comment, Matthew 12, 36. He sees everything you do in secret, both the good and the bad, Matthew 6, 4. He hears every whispered word and will one day shout them from the housetops, Luke 12, 3. No wonder David exclaimed as he pondered how much God knew about him. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me, Psalm 139, verse 5. David felt trapped by God's knowledge of his every word and deed. 
but it also served as a comfort knowing that God knows and remembers him. Now back to our story. This nobleman had to trust Jesus and walk two days back to his city to see if his son was healed. There was no plan B. It would be another four days if the son wasn't healed for this man to return to Cana and bring back Jesus. And by then, the son would most likely have died. So it was a life and death situation for this man to trust if Jesus' words really did heal his son from certain death 35 kilometers away. But this man did trust Jesus' words and made the journey back home. Look what happens in verse 51. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Leaving Cana without Jesus and returning to Capernaum shows that this nobleman had deepening faith in Jesus. But you can also imagine with every step, he may still perhaps wonder if his beloved son really was healed or not. But then close to Capernaum, he met his servants who were on their way to tell him in Cana that he didn't need to bring Jesus because his son, who was close to death, was now very much alive. He had been healed. In this miracle, Jesus, God himself, showed that he is not bound by physical space. He can do a miraculous work in a place 35 kilometers away without even being there. Remember earlier, the nobleman expected that Jesus needed to be in the same place as the one he would heal. But Jesus showed otherwise. Jesus shows his divine power as God himself, whose power and authority is not bound to a physical location. And here we have our third biblical principle, biblical principle number three. Confident faith is remembering God's power is not limited, especially by physical location. Confident faith is remembering God's power is not limited, especially by physical location. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere always. So we can be fully confident that His power is not limited in any way, especially by physical space. So when we pray for our loved ones or others, even if they are far away or abroad, our prayers are effective as God's power extends over there as well. One of the great fears of parents is the uncertainty of letting go of your children and trusting that they will be okay. You know that feeling when they go off to college for the first time, or they commute by themselves for the first time, or they go off to a school overseas. I even saw and felt the same fear and anxiety on Wednesday morning as parents said goodbye to their high schoolers who went away on a four-day, three-night youth camp. Perhaps they were away from their children for the first time ever. But while we cannot be with them physically or even see them, there is a God whose presence and power is not bound by location or physical space. The God over the Philippines is the same God over the U.S., the same God overlooking Ukraine, the same God also over Canada, Australia, China, Hong Kong, and in fact, the entire world. As A.W. Tozer writes on God's power, anything God has ever done, He can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, He can do here. Anything God has ever done for anyone, He can do for you. Our confident faith is remembering that God's power and authority is not limited. Now look with me at verses 52 to 54. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew 
that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. We are told in these verses that the nobleman asked his servant what time his son turned the corner being so close to death. And the servant replied, the seventh hour the day before, which in Jewish time would be 1 p.m. in the afternoon the previous day. The nobleman realized and said that it was the very same time Jesus said the words, your son lives. The power of Jesus' healing words was such that it healed the boy 35 kilometers away at the very moment he said it. We see that God's word is authoritative, powerful, trustworthy, and instantly applicable. This miracle of Jesus and the amazing way in which it was done so convinced this man and his family about the person of Jesus that the Bible tells us the entire household believed. And this is our fourth biblical principle. Biblical principle number four. Confident faith knows that God's Word is authoritative, powerful, trustworthy, and instantly applicable. Confident faith knows that God's Word is authoritative, powerful, trustworthy, and instantly applicable. Again, we trust in the person of God, and therefore, by logical extension, we trust in His words. Whatever He says, we can fully trust because of who He is, even if it deals with matters of salvation and eternal life. So when God says, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, we can be fully confident it is true and can be believed. When he tells us that if we follow his commands, we will live blessed lives, we can trust in those words also. When he tells us that while we may not receive earthly treasures now and may even suffer, but have been promised eternal rewards and that God will make it up to us, we can have confident faith that it will happen. In fact, these were Paul's very sentiments to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. I'm reminded of this funny story. It was autumn and the Native American Indians on a remote reservation asked their new chief if the winter was going to be cold or mild. Since he was an Indian chief living in a modern society, he had never been taught the old secrets of how to forecast the weather. When he looked at the sky, he couldn't tell what the weather was going to be. Nevertheless, to be on the safe side, he replied to his tribe that the winter was indeed going to be cold and that the members of the village should collect firewood to be prepared. Also, being a practical leader, after several days, he got an idea. He went to the phone booth and called the U.S. National Weather Service and asked, is the coming winter going to be cold? It looks like this winter is going to be quite cold indeed, the meteorologist at the weather service responded. So the chief went back to his people and told them to collect even more wood in order to be prepared. A week later, he called the National Weather Service again. Is it going to be very cold winter? Yes, the man at the National Weather Service again replied. It's definitely going to be a very cold winter. The chief went back to his people and ordered them all to collect every scrap of wood they could find. Two weeks later, he called the National Weather Service again. 
are you absolutely sure that the winter is going to be very cold? Absolutely, the man replied. It's going to be one of the coldest winters ever. How can you be so sure, the chief asked. The weatherman replied, because I see the Native American Indians are collecting wood like crazy, and they are never wrong. As you can see, the world often relies on faulty foundations for trust because they don't have anything or anyone to really trust in. But as Christians, we do because we can place our trust in a God who is all-powerful and whose words can be trusted. That is why we can have confident faith. I like how Warren Worsby summarizes his story. This man began with crisis faith, but his crisis faith turned into confident faith as he heard Jesus' words. His confident faith became confirmed faith when his servants told him about his son being healed. And his confirmed faith turned into contagious faith as his entire household believed upon Jesus. My friends, we can have confident faith, but we need to understand, number one, the journey towards confident faith often begins with a desperate crisis. Number two, confident faith is trusting the person of God and not contingent upon seeing His outworking. Number three, confident faith is remembering God's power is not limited, especially by physical location. Number four, confident faith knows that God's Word is authoritative, powerful, trustworthy, and instantly applicable. My friends, may confident faith mark our lives as we place our trust in a God whose power is not limited and whose words can be trusted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. There are times that our faith is results-oriented. We forget that our faith needs to be person-centered. I pray that you would instill in each one of us a confident faith whose trust and faith is in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we will see that it is because of who you are and what you can do that we can place full faith in you. Your power extends beyond any physical location of space. You are omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and for that, we can place full trust in you, and for that, we can trust in your words. Father, give us a confident faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Music